0: I am Joe Collins, and we are following Jesus through the pages of Mark. As uh, uh, Rebecca said in the Welcome, our mission is to love and live like Jesus. And that can never happen unless Jesus is in us, unless we are spiritually formed into Christ. And last week we talked about the process of spiritual formation and the whole idea that you can't have Christ in you unless you are being formed into Christ and the idea was sometimes there's hard lessons in life that we have to go through you remember the lawyer arguing with the cop and the cop kind of beat him over the head a few times to teach him a lesson sometimes we have to go through hard lessons to be formed into Christ this today though we're going to take another step in the process of becoming like Christ and we're going to we're going to learn that Jesus cared for people he cared for even bad people so a child went to his mother and said, Mom, how did people, where, do, where did people come from? And the mom said, well, son, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and all the stars and the plants and the animals and everything. And on the sixth day, he created Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve had babies and those babies grew up and they had babies and those babies grew up and they had babies and so on. And, and that's how we got here. The kid said, okay. So he ran to his dad and he said, Dad, where, do, where did we come from? And the dad said, well, billions of years ago, there was an explosion. And the plants and the stars and everything got formed. The universe was, was, was formed at that point. And then life appeared on the earth. And over billions of years through evolution, it evolved into apes. And eventually those apes evolved into humans. And then those humans had more humans, and that's how we got here. So the little boy was upset. He ran back to his mom, and he said, Mom, you lied to me. And she said, well, what do you mean? She said, He said, Well, you told me God created the heavens and the earth. He created Adam and Eve, and, and they had babies, and that's how we got here. But Dad said that we evolved from apes into humans. And Mom said, Son, he was talking about his side of the family. <laughs> You know, it's so easy to discount other people that aren't like us. The fact of the matter is, this world is full of all kinds of people. And they're very different from us in the way that they believe, in the way that they act, in the way that they think. And it's so easy to dismiss them and to, to want them to be away from us because they're different, to not care about them. But Jesus cared about people. We're going to learn today that he even cared about those who are hard to care about. Turn with me to Matthew, sorry, Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, we'll start in verse 11. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had arrived, they came and started to argue with him, testing him. They demanded that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. When they heard this, when he heard this, he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, "Why do these people keep demanding a miraculous sign, I tell you the truth, I will not give this generation any such sign. So he got back into the boat and left them, and he crossed to the other side of the lake. As you can see on our slide here, we have the map of Palestine and Jesus's day. And, and uh, last week, we were here uh, in this part on the far right-hand side, on the, on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, in an area known as the Decapolis. That's where Jesus was last week. And, and after he left the Decapolis, he, he crossed the Sea of Galilee to this area here called the region of Dalman Utha. Now, nobody knows exactly where Dalman Utha is because it's never been discovered. Although in 2013, uh, some archaeologists believe they may have found it, but it was somewhere near the area of Magdala. It was, a, it was kind of an area along the shore, uh, the shore, the the what is that, the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And it was in Uh, the, the province of Galilee. And so Jesus left the Decapolis, crossed back over into Galilee, and after some time, a group of Pharisees came up to him, and it says that they tested him. And they wanted him to show them a sign. Now, you might think, well, this is strange, because for the past two years or so, Jesus has been going all around the area, performing miraculous deeds and teaching amazing lessons, and you would think, isn't that sign enough? But the the, the fact of the matter is that the Pharisees here were not asking for Jesus to do another miracle. What they were asking for was specifically a sign from heaven. They were testing him. They wanted to know, could he produce some sort of evidence that would prove to them that he was sent from God? They were looking for, oh, I don't know, a burning bush. You know, something from their history that, uh, that maybe in their, in, their, in their memory or in their history uh, in the Jewish faith that, that acknowledged that this person is from God, like Moses saw the burning bush. Or how about a staff that turns into a snake? You know, you throw it on the ground and it turns into the snake. And these were indications that God's authority was with this person. That's the kind of sign they were looking for. Wouldn't it be easier if if God would just send the gospel blimp? Wouldn't it be awesome if heaven opened up and there came not the Goodyear blimp, but the gospel blimp, and it came down and Jesus is driving it, and He's waving at us and making it abundantly clear that He's Lord of heaven and earth and that He's the Messiah? I mean, wouldn't that just be easier for us? Don't you sometimes wish, God, can't you just make it obvious to me? Sometimes I wish that. Sometimes I, 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 you know, I ask, is, is there an app? Could you, could you send me an app that proves that you're the son of God? Could I, how about if I throw my phone on the ground and it bursts into flame but doesn't burn up and God speaks to me? How about that? Show me something. <laughs> we all do that. What's interesting in this passage, though, is Jesus understood that. And Mark, who wrote the passage, who tells us about it, understood that in doing that, they were testing him. Now, those of us that know our scriptures know one thing comes out very loud and clear. It's not a good idea to test the Lord, your God. It usually doesn't come out well. Of all people, the Pharisees, if Jesus really was from God to ask him to do that would have been a major no, no of all people. These men would have known that they would have known that's a bad idea to test God. Obviously, they didn't believe he was from God and they felt no uh, insecurity or, or reservation in trying to test him. So Jesus replies in verse 12 by sighing. <sighs> you know, we, a couple weeks ago, we saw Jesus sigh. He was in the city of Sidon, healed a deaf man there, and he sighed. And, and in that passage, it was clear in the context that that he was sighing a sigh of compassion for the man and for the trouble that that man had experienced in his life. But in this case, I don't think the sigh was necessarily one of compassion. It it might have been a little more frustrating. I want to share a, a funny little story from Israel's history because I want to give you a perspective on why Jesus might have sighed. This is just my guess. But, but it has to do with the fact that they were trying to tempt him. They were trying to test him into something that wouldn't be right for him to do. Even if he is God, it wouldn't have been a good idea for them. So I want to share a story from uh, 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 36 through 40. You can read that, but I'm going to give you the, the, the background really quick. It was a time in Israel's history when they had a bad king. His name was Ahab. It had a wife named Jezebel. And they had led all of Israel astray into idolatry, worshiping a God named Baal. It got so bad that people didn't even know what to believe. The Israel was just so lost and so led astray. And even it seemed like there wasn't even a man of God around. Although some prophets were being hidden because they were being killed. And God goes to Elijah and says, I need you to go talk to Ahab and confront him. So Elijah says, okay, so he goes. And he tells Ahab, we need to have a talk. And Ahab says, great. Let's do this. We're going to have a showdown. Once and for all, we're going to prove which God is the right God. So they go up onto Mount Carmel. And and Elijah says, you guys go first. So Ahab gets 450 prophets of Baal to come up to the mountain to do their thing. Their enchantments, their dances, their prayers, their, their, their worship, the whole thing. And it's a crazy scene. Meanwhile, Elijah's building an altar. And Elijah gives these guys as much time as they need. Go ahead. Call on Baal. See what happens. Prove it. And they do all day long to the point to where they're just exhausted and there's nothing more they can do and there's no answer. So now it's Elijah's turn. Elijah says, hey, let's dump a bunch of water on my altar. We're going to get a a, a bull. We're going to sacrifice it. We're going to put it on the altar. Instead of lighting it on fire, though, we're going to cover it in water. So much water that the altar is like half submerged. And then Elijah prays to God. And it says here in verse 18, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know you. O Lord, and our, 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 that people will know that you are, O Lord, our God, and that you have brought them back to yourself. Immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young Bull, the wood, the stones, the dust. It even licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, The Lord is God! Yes, the Lord is God! Then Elijah commanded, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one of them escape. So the people seized them all, and Elijah took them down to the Kishron Valley and killed them there. Thank God for the Pharisees that Jesus only sighed. Because when you try to tempt God, when you try to prove, make God try to prove himself, bad things usually happen to at least one side of the coin. So Jesus sighs, and it's almost comical to me. (laughs) Okay, I don't think you know what you're asking when you say, let me prove who I am. I don't think you could handle it. So he doesn't sigh. And then he says, I will not give this generation any such sign. You know, I believe Jesus refused to give them anything that they asked for because they had already determined in their heart their opinion of him. It would have been pointless. It would have been fruitless at that point. Even if the gospel blimp came out of heaven at that moment, they would come to some sort oh, it was a bird. They would go around saying it was a fake news story. And then they would create fake news stories and say that those are real news stories. And then everybody would be confused between what's the fake news and what's the real news and everybody would take a side. That's all that would happen. If if you've determined in your heart that this isn't for you, if you're not open at all, there's not much God's going to do. And you know something? I appreciate that because God doesn't want us to be forced into our faith he wants us to find faith he wants us to discover it for ourselves. to come to faith it's one of the greatest joys of being a Christian is that experience of coming to faith otherwise we'd be robots yeah God could send the angels down and there could be angels in this room and we'd be all like okay I'm not gonna sin I'm not gonna doubt God okay and you know, we'd be scared to death it wouldn't be true conversion And so no sign for these guys would have been enough. Secondly, it wouldn't have been genuine faith. It would have been a forced faith. But thirdly, and this is what I want to talk about just for a minute, there was already plenty of evidence. You know, the same is true today. There is plenty of evidence. The case for Christ has been tested for 2,000 years now, and it has passed The test again and again and again. And every new generation thinks that they're smarter than the one before them. Chronological snobbery. They somehow think they know better than the generation that came before, and they've got a new idea or new insight or new technology, and then they test it, and guess what? Christ proves himself again and again. And then the next generation comes along and thinks, oh, no, no, we figured it out. And this has been going on since humanity was created and certainly since Jesus walked this earth. The evidence is all around. And i got to believe that at some point, for those of you that have struggled to believe, those of you that, that even today as, as Christians still struggle to believe, I, gotta, I want you to hear this because I think it's an important thing for us to connect to. At some point, if you keep doubting, if you keep struggling if you keep questioning in a, in a faithless way, not in a way to learn, not in a way to understand, but in a, in a testing sort of way, at some point, that has got to be exhausting to God. Really? Again? Have I not shown myself to you enough already? If you're new here today, please understand that, that there is evidence for what we do there, we have a reason for what we believe and it's not just emotional christianity and judaism before it are historical faiths they're grounded in history and they can be tested and approved no you're not going to get a gospel blimp that's going to happen one day and it's going to be over on that day because faith will become sight at that point but until then yes we're going to have to find the real news And we're going to have to identify that, but it's only going to get there if we're willing to be faithful, if we're willing to open up our mind to it. And trust me, after a while, it becomes more and more evident. It becomes more and more clear. It's a family service today. We've got junior high and high school and all the students in with us, and I love family service because it's a time for us to worship together. It's a time for our kids to see the adults' faith. It's a time for the adults to see the kids' faith. It's a time for us to connect on on many different levels. But i got to tell you, even as a young man, you you, you may start out with doubts and there's a lot of attacks that happen in school from the time you're little to the time you go to college and they're not going to go away. And they don't go away after you get out of college, by the way. There's always people doubting and naysaying and attacking and wanting to test. But I want to tell you this, if you truly come to God with faith and you truly give it a fair hearing, You will see the truth of it. And if you continue to pursue it, it will become more real every year. And there's a point in your life where you will go, how does nobody else see this? And when people come to you with doubts, you're going to go, again, with the doubts. Just like Jesus. I want to look at this passage from another perspective. Mark, who's also a gospel writer, wrote the same account. He recorded the same incident. And I want you to listen to what he says because he gives us a little insight as to what happened here. One day, the Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus to test Jesus, demanding that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. He replied, you know the saying, red sky at night means fair weather tomorrow. Red sky in the morning means foul weather all day. You know how to interpret the weather signs in the sky, but you don't know how to interpret the signs of the times. Only an evil, adulterous generation Would demand a miraculous sign. But the only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Then Jesus left them and went away. So we learn a couple things here from Matthew's account. It wasn't only the Pharisees. We talked about this last week. There were several different sects in Judaism at the time. The Pharisees were probably the most dominant, most significant. Their job was to try to protect the Jewish faith, and that's why they're always there when Jesus is there, because they're always quizzing him or testing him, or at this point in time, they already rejected him, so now they were just there trying to publicly disgrace him all the time. That was what they did. The Sadducees were a group of, of Jewish people that basically became Hellenized. They basically became Greek. They just wanted to fit in. They were more political. They were more savvy. They wanted to maintain some semblance of their faith, but they just basically compromised and became like the culture. The Essenes, well, they were up in the mountains somewhere hiding. And the, and the Zealots, well, they were out trying to kill people. So that was the, the different sects. And in this case, we have two sects come to Jesus, and they want to test him, both the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But Jesus says something here that's not recorded in Mark, but I think it's significant. He says, you know the saying. In other words, Jesus tries to reason with these guys. Can you believe that? These guys, for the past several months in Jesus' ministry, maybe even a year by now, had openly rejected him. They were publicly calling him Satan. That's how opposed to him they had become. And yet, even now, Jesus is trying to get through to them. Even now, he says, guys, hey, you can predict the weather when you look at the sky, if it's red or in the morning or at night or whatever, you can kind of predict what's going to happen the next day. You know, all you got to do is look around, and, and you might be able to see what I'm saying. You might not actually need a sign. If you just take a look, if you just read the signs that are in front of you, If you stop asking for more evidence and start looking at the evidence that's already there, you might actually come to the right conclusion. The same is true for us. The evidence for Christ is everywhere. The evidence for God of the Bible is everywhere. But we have to stop looking for more and start examining what's already been given. But they don't. The Pharisees don't. And Jesus says to them, you evil and adulterous generation. There is a lot of evil in the world that we could think of right now. Horrific things that happen to people in people's lives and and all around. But you know something that is so evil and so repulsive to God is unbelief in Him. As a matter of fact, a lot of that evil probably comes from a lack of belief in Him. It's one of the worst things anyone could do is to to, to struggle to refuse to believe in God. It's one of the greatest evils of mankind. And Jesus says, you wicked and adulterous generation, no sign will be given. And then He makes this comment, except the sign of Jonah. Now, that one threw me for a loop. What does that mean? What is the sign of Jonah? For a second, you can think about it. I'll give a, a 30 seconds here. If you have an idea, raise your hand. You can blurt it out. What do you think he meant by the sign of Jonah? Comparing the, Nineveh to the, Pharisees. Comparing the city of Nineveh to the Pharisees. Yep. Jesus was dead for three days. Jonah was in the, the, the belly of the, the creature for three days. I think of the, withering vine. the withering vine? Yeah. Wanted, yes. All of those are accurate. But let's, let's just for fun, let's, let's talk about the story of Jonah for a minute. And, and I'm going to give you a, a, a homework assignment. Read the book of Jonah this week. Okay. It's four chapters it's 44 verses it takes like 15 minutes to read it's a great read and you're gonna really understand what Jesus meant when he said to these guys no sign will be given to you except for the sign of Jonah you got to know that the Pharisees and Sadducees they knew the story of Jonah very well and the second he said that their little their little Rolodex spun around in their head and they they remembered the story so they understood what he meant but we are removed, and, and, and it takes us a little more energy to dig in and try to understand it. So I went back, and I reread the story of Jonah. I want you to do the same. It's a really good read. But let me give you a little synopsis to help you. Chapter 1, Jonah is called by God to preach to the Ninevites, the city of Nineveh. It was a pagan city. It wasn't Jewish. It was outside of the Jewish community. They were enemies of the Jewish people, and they were idolatrous. They were evil. They worshiped false gods. They practiced human sacrifice. I mean, it was a horrible, horrible place. So Jonah says, no. And he gets on a boat, and he goes literally the opposite direction. So God says, well, I'm not letting you get away. And so the the, the storm comes, and they realize it's because of Jonah. The boat's about to sink, so they throw Jonah overboard. And a creature, some sort of fish, swallows him. And then in, uh, I think it's chapter 2, after three days, Jonah prays to repent. He comes to his senses. He finally says, okay, God, I'll do what you said. After three days. Think about this for a minute. It's not finding Nemo. They didn't go in and the belly of the fish wasn't a whale, it was a fish or a creature, but, but there's no light in there. It's utter darkness. It's... Pitch black. This fish is swimming under and up, you know, in and out of the water, whatever it's doing, he's being tossed around and has zero orientation. No way. It can't even see his hand in front of his face. I mean, guys, he didn't have a lighter, he didn't have his cell phone and turned his light on. It was pitch black in there. One of the greatest fears of any human person on the planet is to be buried alive. I can't even think about it. I I start to like quiver and and I have to like put the thought out of my head. Sometimes you get those thoughts and you're like, why am I thinking this? It's horrible. (laughs) And he sat in that situation for three days. Now, I don't know exactly how, how to take the story. Did Jonah pray immediately or did it take him three days? I tend to think it took him a while before he started asking God for help. But what that tells me is how much he hated the Ninevites because he would prefer to die in a fish than to go to Nineveh. Could you imagine that? Is there anything you would be that terrified of? Is there any person on the planet that you would be so terrified that you would rather me throw you into the ocean in the middle of a storm, get swallowed by a fish, and then swim around in utter darkness for three days? I can't think of anything that would be worse than that. And there Jonah sat until he finally prayed to God for rescue. So chapter 3, the fish barfs him out, and he goes to Nineveh. And he preaches to the Ninevites, and, and, and he wanted, God wanted him to tell the Ninevites that they, if they didn't repent, God was going to destroy them. I don't know what the details were of the, of the, the situation, but it was clearly God's judgment was coming. So Jonah goes to Nineveh, he preaches to the Ninevites, and they repent. And Jonah goes home, praising God, how amazing it is, God, that you used me, and I could never have seen this coming. I feel so amazed. I mean, listen to my incredible story. I saved the Ninevites, and they were a horrible people, and what a great guy. And at the next conference, he, he spoke. He was invited to speak at the next conference on missions because of all the people he converted. And they, they made him a, a world missions leader. And he, he, you know, no. No, no, no. He was so bitter that they repented. That he ran into the desert where the sun beat down on him, gave him a headache. He was so miserable, he's like, I'm going to die. And he just laid down to die of exposure. So he went from being buried alive to dying of exposure. That's how much he hated the Ninevites. So God sends a plant. Susan mentioned this. A bush. And it grows, and it creates shade, and Jonah crawls under it, and he's like, oh, finally, some relief. And he's enjoying his moment in the shade, and then God sends a worm to eat the plant. <laughs> and the plant dies And there's Jonah again with the sun beating down on his head. And he's just like, I'm ready to die. And listen to what God says to him. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Listen to Jonah. Yes, Jonah retorted. Even angry enough to die. This is not a guy doing well. Then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and it died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great people, city? What's the sign of Jonah? Jonah. Well, the sign was that Jonah cared more about a stupid plant than he did 120,000 souls. The love of God was not in him. It was not what he wanted to do. When he heard Nineveh and he heard preach to them, he went the other way. And when he finally went and they repented, he was so bitter about it, he left. Could you imagine hating anybody that much? That you would rather, that you would mourn the death of a plant and not the death of those people? Could you imagine that much animosity? It's hard for us, I think, to grasp this because we've lived in 2,000 years of the grace of of God, of the love of Jesus Christ, and it's it's almost automatic for us. But, you know, maybe the closest is is what what if God asked you to go to Mosul, Iraq, and meet with ISIS in the hopes that they would repent? Now, never mind the fact that members of your family were murdered by them. Never mind the fact that they've been enemies of civilization and of people, and they do atrocious, disgusting things. Do you realize what's happening over there? Do you realize they're crucifying? They literally have crucified Christians. I forget the number now, but last year, hundreds. Crucified. They abuse children, women, they use them as bombs. It is dark. There's no guarantee that they're going to listen to you. They might just skin you alive. And, you want, and God says, go to those people. Let's be honest. I think that would be hard. Yeah. I think we'd be like, God, don't they, whatever happened, an eye for an eye, I mean, don't they get what they deserve? There are some bad people in this world. There are some evil people, people living in darkness. It's so much easier to hang out with the people I like. So much easier to want to be around the people that I agree with and I think like me. It's so hard to want to go to lost people, people in darkness, bad people, the worst people. So let's put it in context. Jesus had just left the Decapolis, a Gentile area. He had just spent several weeks preaching and teaching to a large Gentile audience. He came back to Galilee and there were the Jews right away in his face. You see, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they hated the Gentiles. They didn't want them saved. They wanted them judged. And so the sign... To the Pharisees, the sign of Jonah was that you're no different. Jonah wanted a whole city of people killed because he was disgusted with them. And you Pharisees and Sadducees are no different. You have the same animosity towards the Gentile world. In fact, one of the reasons why you rejected me is because I'm willing to go to the Gentile world. I'm willing to let them believe before they belong. I'm willing to preach repentance and practice grace to them. I'm willing to preach the word of God to them. I'm willing to bring them in. And you are so disgusted by that that I can't be from God. Now I got to prove I'm from God. That's the sign of Jonah. And sometimes our hearts get there. We get so wrapped up in our bias, in our bigotry, in our racism, whatever it is. And racism is all colors, it goes every direction. And we don't, want to, we don't want to love people. We don't want to care for people. But Jesus did. So here's the point. And here's what I want you to go home with. If God can care about the worst of us, he can certainly care about the rest of us. I don't know about you, but for me, that's good news. When I get through all of my feelings and all of my attitudes and all of my biases, at the end of the day, I realize that if grace can be given to the worst, then it can be given to me. Because most of us don't think we're the worst. We might think we're bad, but we tend to not think of ourselves as the worst. But that's good news. If that's how big God's love is, is that's how much Jesus cares, then that means more grace and more love for me. And so why would I not want to go help as many people as I possibly can? Why would I not want to go and reach the farthest person? There are 160,000 people living in the Simi Moore Park area. There's another 325,000 people living in the Oxnard, Ventura, Camarillo area. And they're far from God. They don't believe, and they often act like apes. But Jesus cares about them. And if I'm going to love and live like Jesus, if you're going to love and live like Jesus, if we're going to fulfill that mission, then we have to care about them as well. At this time, I'm going to ask my wife to come up. She has a really powerful story, and we're going to let that be the close of the sermon. Uh, but I wanted to share it. She shared it with me earlier this week. It's very moving, but hopefully it illustrates the point of the lesson today, and then we'll wrap up when she's done.
1: Come on, Come So, first of all, before I start, I just want to share some good news. I was able to uh, have a dream come true this last week, two weeks ago, and that was... Uh, but the bike's not on. There you go. I was able to have a dream come true. I was able to participate in um, the baptism of my sister in law. Joe's sister, Jane Collins, was baptized. <laughs> and, and stand up you. you gotta stand up. And there you go. Yeah. That's his big sister, Janie. And I've known her for 25 years, and I love her to death. And I was so honored to baptize you, Janie. Uh, Alright, so my story, uh, Joe asked me to talk about, um, I went to a conference, and um, I met a real-life Jonah. And uh, I'm not kidding, but her name was Debbie. And Debbie, her name uh, is actually, uh, she started a, an organization called Be Finally Free. And that is an organization where they reach out to uh, people in, that are incarcerated. Well, her story is interesting because she spent about 30 years as a vice president of a security company and uh, about two years uh before this her whole incident started she, her husband and her decided to step into ministry so they just recently stepped into ministry and um her niece who was 17 was walking through a cornfield um, they live up in bakersfield uh and um, we got four or five friends and someone viciously gunned them all down and they were killed and her niece passed away um and so that was very traumatic obviously and it was um the, the uh, murderer fled with his uh, girlfriend and child, and they could not find them. It was actually on America's Most Wanted twice, and he was finally caught and incarcerated, and he got three life sentences. So, you know, this ordeal was pretty intense and pretty long, and then finally, so she kind of put it behind her, and as one day she was um, ministering to a group of younger kids, she was talking about forgiveness, her heart felt very convicted that she needed to forgive him. And like you and me, I think, you know, she's, We'd think, okay, God, I forgive him, but he's there and I'm here. There's no reason to have contact. But her heart was continually being pursued by God. God was pressing on her to have contact with him and to forgive him face to face. And she did not want to do it. Her answer was, no, God, I'm not doing that. I don't need to do that. He's he's there. I'm here. I can forgive in my heart. I don't need to see him. And she's literally said that she was pursued. She had not started a prison ministry at this point. They just started ministry, not prison. That was might have on her heart. She just said, "No, I'm not doing that." And she said, "It was day and night, and day and night. It was on her heart for five years." And she said, "No, God, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm not going to talk to him." So she finally said, "Her and her husband talked and write him a letter." So she wrote him a letter. She wrote him a five-page letter, and in this letter, she told him all about God, and you know, really tried to pour out her heart. And he wrote back a couple weeks later, and you know what he said? I want no contact with you unless you buy me a TV. And that was her first letter back. And so they continued, she wrote letters and he really had almost no response. She set she up to meet with him, he finally agreed to meet with her and he didn't show up. She went to the prison, she sat, he didn't show up. She did that five more times, he didn't show up. He was in a lot of trouble still, even in jail. He was in so much trouble that they ended up moving him into total isolation. He was a very hard person. He was in 23 (laughs) hours of solitary confinement and one hour out. That's the kind of person that he was. Even in prison, he couldn't get along. And he had significant issues. So she finally went and met him again. And he showed up. And he was. she said when he walked down, he actually showed up. He came out. He had his eyes were as hard as anyone's I've ever seen. That was the most awkward, most uncomfortable moment. And she said, I didn't even know what to say. And and so they talked about Jack in the Box and burritos and, and nothing. And they laughed. They actually got to laugh a little bit. And she said, it was just really weird. She goes, and she laughed, and he didn't change at all. His heart wasn't soft at all. He was as hard as when he showed up. But her heart was changed. She changed. And so it continued, and finally she saw him again, and she said he came out after many. This has gone on for, I think, seven years, six or seven years now, of writing and talking, trying to get him to talk and understand God's love for him. He came out one time, and he, she said he was completely different. He was smiling, he was telling her how much he's learned about God, he's been reading the Bible, he's feeling like he, he totally wanted to repent. He was a completely different person. He was apologizing, he said, he said I've been alone, I've been looking at the word, you've been reaching out to me and I have totally understood now the grace of God and I'm sorry. After all these years. Amen. Yeah, I, I'm in. So she has this a relationship, with, you know, kind of relationship with this person who is very intense, right? And she, you know what she said at that moment? She was mad. <laughs> she, said, well, she, thought, she said, I had no idea what I would feel when he finally understood God, loved him, that he could be forgiven. And she said, I was mad. She goes, wait a minute. I have to spend eternity with someone like him? I don't want to spend eternity with him. I don't want him to be on equal footing with me. I don't, we don't get to be peers. Because she had gone in kind of initially forgiving him, but she was helping and serving and taking care of, you know, reaching out to the lowly in the Christian way and out of kind of a God conscience. And now she has to accept him. And that was really, really hard. Yeah. And that's where I think we can go. Is that we really, it, it's really amazing. So she, they, they now are doing a Bible study together in Psalms 91. And he, he, he actually gets to teach her. And she, they do it together. She's treating him as a peer. It's pretty intense. Yeah. And so she, says she started a ministry because of all this called Be Finally Free. And she visits the prisons three times a week. And she actually has people write letters. So she has invited us to write letters to people in prison. It's all anonymous. You don't get any. It's not like her. You don't get personal contact or through P.O. Box. If anyone's interested, they do need people to write letters to inmates, and you can write about God. That's the whole point. So it's pretty cool, um, her ministry, that you can be involved in something like that. You do not meet them. They don't encourage relationships. It's just a letter ministry. But I just wanted to share with you that there are people out there who are struggling with real life issues. This is not just back in the day with Jonah that things like this happen. We have hurts that are deep and things that have happened that we hold on to that are really hard to forgive. And sometimes we don't even want them to be forgiven. <laughs> but God can do anything, you know, with our hearts if we just continue to let Him work with that. So I just want to share. I thought that was a really neat Amen. Thank you.
0: So we're going to close out now. I'm going to ask you to stand on up. We're going to close with a prayer. But let's leave here with a renewed sense of the grace of God and a renewed commitment to the love of Christ and what that really looks like to love people who are far away. I'm going to say a prayer and we'll close out. Father, thank you so much for bringing us together this morning. Thank you for the convicting and powerful story and message of Debbie and of Jonah and of Jesus Christ and for the example of all of them in our lives that they call us higher and help us, God, to be made into Christ To let Christ be formed in us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.
1: We're going to close with one final song Great Among the Nations.